Welcome, everybody, to Edge of the Rabbit Hole. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker. With me, as always, my co-hostess, Victoria Monday. And down in the chat room, Alina moderating the chat. We have a fantastic show coming up for you tonight. We have paranormal author Richard Estep with us. He's the author of over 20 books. He's been on several of the paranormal television shows like Haunted Case Files, Paranormal Night Shift, and, and many others. We're going to get into all of these things this evening. Paranormal Investigator has been a tour guide at the Stanley Hotel, and uh, he also works uh, as a, in the uh, emergency medical field. And uh, Richard, is, is I have to ask you, because... I just met you for the first time back in uh, September, but we didn't really talk uh, how you got into the paranormal. Is it through the medical field that you got your start or was it somewhere else? Yeah, that's right. We did. We just met in the uh, in Salem, didn't we, at the um, Mass Paranormal. Yeah. Excellent event. Loved it. No, actually, I've only been in medicine for 20 years. Um, I was interested in the paranormal because as a boy, uh, my grandparents owned a haunted house. And my aunts and uncles used to tell me these terrifying stories um, about the old lady that had um, taken care of this house when my grandfather was away fighting in the war. And uh, I used to sleep in one of the haunted bedrooms. And although nothing strange ever happened to me in that house, it gave me a lifelong fascination with the paranormal. And I'm a child of the 70s, so you, there was really no paranormal TV back then. And growing up, the only way you could learn about this subject was go to the library. And so I... I went to my town library and took out every book on ghosts and the paranormal that I possibly could. And uh, years later, I'm still doing that. And I'm writing those books now. Good. Yeah, that that's fantastic. And uh, I have to really appreciate your library there because uh, the, the small town that, you know, I had at least while I was in junior high and high school, very, very limited on the paranormal literature that they had. So uh, it's great. Librarians are truly unsung heroes, aren't they? They really are. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they certainly are. Um, and, and I worked in the, um, yeah, I've been in IT for forever, but I worked for a library system for about mm -hmm. seven years. And yeah, fantastic people. And I learned a lot there uh, you know, about, you know, the actual craft of being a librarian. There is a craft to it. Mm. And they really are the gatekeepers of, of knowledge. They can, especially at that young age when children's minds are so hungry, a good librarian can absolutely change your life. And I'm convinced that were it not for the Seiston Village Library, um, I would not be writing books today. Yeah, yeah. So you're originally from the UK. Obviously, we can tell from the accent. But so what brought you what brought you stateside here? Well, you mentioned that you were in IT. So was I. I worked mm -hmm. for um, a major blue chip uh, company. I, I won't name them, but let's call them BMI. Uh, and I was a uh, hmm, I was a networking uh, um, Windows guy. So I worked on uh, Microsoft products, servers, firewalls, VPN, Cisco stuff. Uh, and then September 11, um, I'd really missed the camaraderie of being in the Territorial Army, which I did in the UK and was looking to go in the National Guard or the Army Reserve. And when 9-11 happened, I decided I want to serve, wanted to serve the community as a volunteer firefighter. So um, I, I signed up, uh, became an EMT as part of my firefighter training, went to paramedic school, and uh, here I still am. You guys have not evicted me yet, 20 years later. <laughs> Shh. Don't 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 let people know where he's at. We want to keep Richard around. <laughs> well, I see a George Bush next to you there, Victoria. He signed my citizenship um, certificate, so I do have one. Oh, you know, oh, I I great. have mixed emotions about George Bush. I it's a funny story when he was coming back after um, whoever came in after him. I'm so bad in history. Uh, he flew into Ellington, and so we were all down there waiting for him, and we wanted to see the you know Air Force One land, and my friends were late, and so. I was like, I stomped off to the car and I was way, way off. And he came in on another um, landing strip. And so I was the only one out there. And I'm like, hi, hi. And so it was just me, Barbara and George. You know, Mike, oh. you, have a, you have an error screen there. Change your yeah, battery. Tell me low battery. What is going on with that? And a big shout okay, out. You to guys talk for a little bit. That should be <laughs> plugged in. So I'm not understanding what's going on there. Big Oops. shout out to everybody in the comments, by the way. Melissa, see a couple of Sarahs, Brenda. Uh, Mary, Alina, Candy, uh, it's great to have you with us tonight. Uh, we have the greatest, we call them the Mad Hatters or the Happy Chatters, which are, you know, depending on the night. They're um, my kind of people if they're Mad Hatters because there's a chance they'll invite me to a tea party and that brings me joy. 
I love unless it's in Boston. No, (laughs) he's gone. Um, No, I'm not a coffee drinker. Mike is a big coffee drinker, but I'm all about the tea. So me too. Mike has apported apparently. Ooh, or he's um, in another (laughs) another reality. Has the rapture started with Mike? It's what's the comet? It's coming next Monday and it's going to crash into it. So we may or may not have a show next Tuesday. Anyway, let me ask you a question about um, ghost stories in Christmas time because that's mm. like my big thing right now. Um, ghost stories at Christmas time seem to be totally different from ghost stories that happen around Halloween and the vampires and the bloodsuckers. And mm-hmm. what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. And if you look at the nature of the, the holiday, Christmas is, as we all know, it's, it's an old pagan holiday. It goes mm-hmm. back um, millennia in one form or another. Um, for example, the tinsel that we hang on our Christmas trees used to be animal intestines. Oh, um, So there's <laughs> definitely a, a more gruesome and dark side um, to the Christmas celebrations. But I think that at Christmas... As a paranormal investigator, I've, I've noticed I seem to get more accounts of paranormal activity around the Christmas holidays uh, than any other time of year, with the exception, of course, of Halloween. Mm-hmm. And my suspicion is that uh, certainly as you get older, and I don't mean to start off on a downer, oh, um, no, no. <laughs> but as we get older, we start to notice that our nearest and dearest who are no longer with us, you know, there are those empty ta- seats at the Christmas table mm-hmm. uh, of people that are no longer there. And I think we think of our loved ones we do think of ghosts, we do think of the dead, and we do it fondly. Uh, Halloween is more about scares, isn't it? Yeah, um, yeah. Christmas it's is all about chocolate. fond remembrance <laughs> of being with family. So the family we still have, we gather when we can, and thinking about those that can no longer be with us. And I think ever since Charles Dickens gave us the quintessential ghost story, A Christmas Carol, that has flavored pretty much everything to mm-hmm. do with the connection between ghosts and Christmas. It, it almost seems like you're... Um they're trying to get the humanity more into a service role, like do, do unto others and help each other. And it's more heartwarming and, and it's not the, you know, ripping yeah, the jugular that's, out. That, that's absolutely true. Um, Christmas is, is a time when we're also halfway through the darkness of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, the nights are, are going to very soon start getting shorter, you know, uh, and I think it's a festival of light and we celebrate the light and goodness have we ever needed it more than we have over the past year or two oh my gosh oh absolutely i it's i i told mike last week i'm done i'm not going to lose any more friends or family (laughs) that's it (laughs) sarah asks i noticed in the chat sarah yusuf do we think it's a result of seasonal energetic change i mean what do you guys think i first of all i think sarah's awesome Mm -hmm. that's that's my thought (laughs) (laughs) i don't know um it could be. I did a little research back in the olden days. And um, like you were saying, it was a pagan holiday, the mm-hmm. solstice and everything. And they were the sun worshippers, S-U-N. And when Christianity and you know the Crusades and all that came through, they said, no, no, you have to be an S-O-N worshiper. And they're like, yeah, okay, sure. Why not? So um, they sound alike. I don't know. Maybe it's, I don't know, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> Throwing it to you now. Well, I mean, there is going to be a bit of a energy shift with the um, with with the changing seasons, anyways. I mean, you have the just physically, you know, the the Earth is tilting, and so at this time of year in the northern hemisphere, you're getting um, really less of those like cosmic rays from the sun. Where in the summertime, you get more of that. So things like that shift you get the shifting of uh, the tides from time to time of course with the with the moon uh, you have the magnetic energy within the ground you know from the earth's core so you have all of these different factors playing into it so and i, I uh, think that yes. our, focus is, <laughs> our focus is different isn't it we're focused more on family and and i like to think that we're focused more on doing good Goodwill, peace on earth, goodwill to all men, no matter what your religious belief system is or isn't. Um, we can all agree that, Chris, that the holidays are a time for that. And so I like to think we're all a little bit less selfish. We should be around this time of the year than we are usually and a little bit less self-centered. You know, it's interesting you said that because when I was working at a bookstore, we would always study sale patterns and you know what to market and what to put on display and all this kind of stuff and um during the winter months we would sell more hardbacks Mm -hmm. and it's because more people are inside looking within 
they're reading stuff. So maybe, you know, you're, you're spot on there. And in the summer, we're all out willy nilly on the beach, you know, carefree. So. I like that. Yeah, no, I, and I agree with you. You know, there's definitely a focus on family around this time of year. My family gets into like making the cookies and, um, and all of that fun stuff. There's more family gatherings. And so, uh, and of course the gift exchanges and all that. So yeah, definitely there's a different focus this time of year on other things than, you know, cause we had very busy, you know, with our, with our day to day life. And so, um, you know, we kind of forget about some of those things during the year. So we come back at this time and revisit that. Um, let me ask you this, you know, with your, with your research into the paranormal, all the books that you've written, uh, the investigations you've done, um, do you see that playing uh, into this time of year and having effect on supernatural and paranormal activity around this time? I do. And, and I have no evidence other than anecdotal to base this contention on, but mm -hmm. So purely my own very biased perspective, I have a sneaking suspicion that as we gather around the Christmas tree, as we as we get together over the holidays, I like to think anyway that our, our loved ones drop back in and they're a little bit closer to us around the holidays than, than perhaps they might be at other times of the year because we're more focused on them, uh, how much we miss them, the happy times we had with them. So that's my theory as to why we see more paranormal activity reported over the holidays i think it's a very positive thing yes so you think people like spirits human spirits are visiting during this time because family members are, are calling out to them and yeah, i don't think they're doing, manifesting that yeah i don't think they're necessarily doing it consciously but um christmas for many people is a bittersweet holiday it is for me i'm 48 years old um you know and so when you reach that age where you realize there are more days behind you than ahead of you you become a little bit introspective and, and i i think that at christmas we remember our childhoods we remember what it was like to be so innocent um the excitement of a christmas morning what's in the, what's under the tree what is in those presents you know and the pure joy of it i think is something we all like to return to even if it's just nostalgically at least that's the way i am i can't speak for everybody else I like that. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely agree because we had, you know, and I've kind of noticed because I'm almost the same age as you. I'm just a year younger. And I've kind of noticed some of the, uh, you know, just within my family that there are certain traditions and things that we did back in the day, like when my grandparents were, were still with us, certain uh, you know, traditions that we had at their house, you know, the, the way the family would gather. And in some ways it's, it's really changed over the years since they've passed. And, you know, people have gotten older, you know, myself, my sister, we've grown up, we've had our own families now. And so those traditions have changed, but there is that still that nostalgia that's there and whether or not, uh, you know, the, the family members that have passed come back to visit. It's almost like their ghosts are with us anyways, just from their memories. Yeah, and I, and I do think that we focus more on it. We're more actively engaged with them at this time of year than at any other, perhaps save their birthday, all those special days. So, um, But I think people have more opportunities to be kind at Christmas, and, and I think it behooves us all to take those opportunities whenever we can find them. Yeah. Do you have any books on, on holiday ghosts or spirits or anything like that? I don't. Actually, um, I've never written a book about holiday ghosts. It might be an idea. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's already been done. Uh, but no, I don't. You know, it'd be I'm, I'm kind of surprised given how many you've written. A, yeah. a pop up. Do a pop up book. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Bring those back, too. Yeah, no, a lot of the. Um, a lot of my friends are, are in the performing arts, and so they're very. Uh, uh, vocal, they're great storytellers, mm -hmm. but and then I've seen other people who are, are losing touch with the storytelling genre, storytelling bug, uh, aptitude, whatever you want to call it. Do you think it's coming back or do you think it's going away, the art of storytelling? I think it's changing focus. Um, for example, I think that um, I was I was watching a movie, this is interesting, I was watching a movie the other night called The Last Duel. It was a Ridley Scott film and it was a three hour and some change medieval epic which bombed at the box office and mm. i read a comment by ridley scott blaming cell phones he said you know people today they're so married to their cell phones they don't have the attention span to to 
to appreciate a three-hour movie. I paraphrase, but that's essentially his comment. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it, and I just thought the technology we have changes the way we interact with stories. We see video games now, which are essentially interactive stories. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was and remain a big video game aficionado. Um, video games were relatively mindless. They were all about reflexes. Mm -hmm. Now you have full narratives that you can explore and change the um, uh, change the outcome repeatedly. You have creative writing teams that put these games together. So we see, I think, a more interactive environment. Storytellers like myself, like you guys, um, we're closer to our reading audiences than ever before, thanks to platforms like this, the one that we're all talking on now, um, thanks to social media, thanks to Patreon and things like that. So I think that the way in which we tell stories is changing somewhat, but human beings are animals, which uh, we thrive on the telling and the hearing of stories, and that will never change. We tell stories as a means of making the universe make sense to us. And that's a, that's a virtue that's as old as humankind itself. There, that that makes a no, I was just going to say that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. because you know back in the day we used to have the bard, you know that would that would travel around and tell the stories and and recount the tales mm -hmm. and and like you said that's changed now you know from book form to yeah. uh, the silver screen and now through through gaming as well and maybe we'll come back to that but well, you, Victoria, you know like I think it's itching to say something said that on one Christmas Eve many hundreds of years ago in England William Shakespeare walked into a pub uh and the the bartender said get out you bard dad <laughs> 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 joke for Christmas just to there you go <laughs> now I was gonna ask you did you ever see the movie Spartacus I think it's Spartacus I, um, I did the movie the show yes I, both I like Kubrick's movie, movie a great deal oh yeah um, I, I think it's that movie when they ask um, Tony Curtis, what do you do? And he says, I'm a singer of songs. Mm. And they're kind of like, eh, big deal. But I think it's a very important, uh, I don't want to say profession, but uh, calling basically is to be someone who recounts the tales and passes them along. And, you know, you, it is almost a singer of songs when you, you know, incorporate the storytelling and the, the pacing and the canter and, you know, it's, which I'm not doing right now, but yeah, <laughs> certain stories are timeless, aren't they? That's why we love a Christmas Carol so much. You know, um, we all we all relate to to that kind of feeling of Scrooge and the Cratchit family and being gathered around at Christmas, and we all can relate to it. So I think certain stories are timeless. They say there are only really three uh, types of story, and then countless variations on them all. But we love stories, and mm -hmm. and I think. Um, that's never going to change as long as humanity is around we will always be tellers and consumers of stories and i'm very happy about that so we're going to see your stories in game format coming up here <laughs> i did just break into comic books which i'm excited about but i don't oh, know great technique for video games yeah um mike your son's in the computer programming right for games my youngest son, yeah. yeah. And I actually, okay. my, my degree is in game and simulation programming, so he's kind okay. of taking after me in, in that regard. He's he's far, far better than, than I ever right. was. Then so. I, I have to yeah. ask. First of all, yes, Sarah, I agree. Stories nourish the soul. Mike, what do you think about the whole reality as a simulation hypothesis? Okay, oh, absolutely. I'll be <laughs> you think that's... Yeah, no, I've, I, that, that's part of one of my books, actually. Uh, yeah, I... <laughs> reality is a simulation you know you look back at your own way who's interviewing who here yeah. well i just want to have words with whoever so, coded 2020 yeah there you go there you go it's 2020 a simulation now the, the whole thing is you know you look back at our uh ancient religions and they actually talk about it being the simulation without saying it's a simulation you look at the idea of reincarnation how you know we're down here for a certain period of time we're learning we're doing things we go back to whatever that home world is and we come back we do it all over again we respawn. you look at christian yeah yeah absolutely you, you respawn yeah <laughs> you even look at christianity and they talk about the idea that you know we're here preparing for the next world i mean it's kind of the same concept so it, it's ingrained in our in our religions in our in our dna we just never really thought of it as a simulation until maybe the last few decades well, if you think about it, they've been putting it right in whoever they are is have been putting it right in front of our face. Like the like 
the hieroglyphs of the pyramids. How many stargates are there? Row, row your boat. Life is but a dream. I, oh, okay. <laughs> Simulacan simulation sitting right at my desk. I have Diet Coke on mine, so I mean. <laughs> Sorry to everyone that was exporting the ghost stuff, by the way. I just couldn't right. jumping on the uh, opportunity. There. But it's all related anyway, because Welcome if, if we are hole. living in, yeah, if we are living in the simulation, what are what are the ghosts and the spirits? Yeah, I mean, to, to me, it seems obvious that we we certainly are reaching a level of technology. It's foreseeable where we will have completely, we will we will be able to create simulation technology that is completely indistinguishable from reality. Which begs the question, has that already been done? And, you know, are we the product of that? But logically, surely the first species to do that, the first iteration of humanity to do it, will do it. And then we are either the first species to do it and we're about to do it, or we are the product of a humanity that has already done it. I know I phrased that incredibly poorly. But either way, right. however this goes, right, it all ends up with there being a massive simulation. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, so, so we could be, you know, creating a simulation within the simulation that's already in a simulation. Who knows how far, you know, it, it's almost like the Russian dolls. How far down are we going? Oh, <laughs> we oh. open up another, we open up another. Yeah. Now you're talking Inception with, you know, with Leo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Inception. Leo. There you go. Leo. <laughs> Sarah says, we are all stray cats in a transitory experience. You just knocked something off my desk to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My cats are all upstairs. So. Ah. Anyway, right. So. so yeah, so we ended up in simulation. This is interesting. This is interesting. Um, you know, because we could go in so many different directions with this. Uh, you know, so where do you see then? Uh, you know, if if we start looking at you know ghosts and spirits and ourselves, uh, you know, being a part of a simulation, then where does our research start heading as far as, you know, paranormal investigators? Well, as simulated investigators investigating our simulated environment, <laughs> that depends on what parameters have been placed upon us that we can't see, doesn't it? Or perceive. I mean, yeah, to, what, are, what are the rules of the simulation? Which rules well, yeah, can be, and which I mean, can I've, be I've broken? To, yeah. Just to, to make folks, um, to talk a little bit more about the paranormal side of things, I've talked to a number of mediums and, you know, you always ask the question, why is communication with whatever the other realms are called? Why is it so maddeningly inconclusive? Why is there no hotline to the dead? You know, why can't my great grandmother tell me, Hey, you're basically down there. Uh, be a nicer kid. You know, uh, that's the whole point. Improve yourself. Be nice. Be less mean. And we keep hearing from mediums and sensitives that, they claim there's there's almost an unwritten set of rules that they cannot feed us the answers to the test, that they cannot, you know, give us definitive proof of their existence. And again, it implies that there is a set of constraints that's coded in, if you will, but imposed upon them and us regarding how far we can go with our research and interactions. Well, maybe it's not constraints so much as that we have to actually figure it out for ourselves because I don't call myself a medium. Not since the 70s. I'm just kidding. Um, sensitive, maybe, yes. But I hear things. No, thank you. Thank you. I'm here all week. Um, but I'm I get sorry answers. I didn't laugh. I'm insensitive. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, I get messages. And like, um, I'm going through something right now. And the message that keeps coming through is, yes, you'll get it. But it'll be there at the very end, at the very last moment. Mm. And this is all you need to know. And it's like, okay. But um, I'm still having to go down the road to get to that last moment. And, but... and doesn't this bring us right back to storytellers th that we were talking about? Because there are many others that have that inbuilt desire to peek at the end. I remember very clearly being on book four of the Harry Potter series, just desperate to know how book seven was going to end, you know, <laughs> um, having to wait years for them to be published. We all kind of like spoilers, don't we? Um, mm -hmm. When the truth is, you have to read the whole thing. You have to understand and appreciate it to get the the, the full benefit of the tale. Um, so I, I like to I love this concept. I've heard some um, mediums talk about where the soul is essentially a library, and each lifetime we have is a book on, in that library. And when the book that is called Richard Estep is done, the last page is turned. 
hopefully it's not a, a, a nasty bloody ending. Um, it goes back on the shelf and then the library, you know, has another, has another book, another life to be lived. I, I think there's a beautiful symmetry to that, um, which speaks to that love of storytelling we all have as humans. We're all, we're all characters essentially, aren't we? In this grand drama of life. Yeah, we certainly are. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we each have our own story, but there's a overall story to the entire universe that yeah, we're all playing a part in. Um, and it's a great analogy, the book on a shelf, but do you, do you think we sometimes have access to some of those other books from time to time that, you know, sometimes we get a glimpse at our past life. You hear about like some of these kids mm -hmm. that, you know, they're, they're, they're born and they seemingly have you know, a, a boatload of memories from mm -hmm. a previous life. You know, what do you think of concepts like that? Hey, you know, everybody loves a trilogy or a quadrilogy, or maybe there are linked <laughs> stories. Maybe there are linked lessons to learn here, you know? Um, maybe it's a saga with with many different volumes and chapters, but they all interrelate. I kind of like that idea too. And of course, my my reader and writer bias is showing there, but that would be a wonderful thing if it was the case, because we all want there to be a point to it all. And surely the point must be that we spiritually improve and we spiritually evolve to become better. And the end of our story has to have, has to have taken us on a journey that has meaning um, and hopefully was beneficial to not just ourselves, but those other characters in our story that came along with us. So what's the meaning of your life's journey? Oh, confusion, uh, I think, <laughs> a never-ending quest for M&Ms. Um, oh. <laughs> I, I think we're all here to learn lessons, and I think we're, we're all here to... to um, to con what's the word I'm looking for here? I, I see this very much as like going to college and this semester, my focus is on certain things. And assuming I learn those lessons, then I can graduate and I can go on to 202 or 203 uh, at, a, at a slightly more advanced level. So, you know, I think as a younger man, um, I wish I'd been less, less self-centered. Um, I frankly wish I'd been less egocentric and I wish I'd been nicer. And heaven knows there are days I still need to work on those issues, as anybody who knows me will tell you. But I do think I'm making progress. So I think the point of all of this is slow but steady incremental progress with the occasional breakthrough or plot twist. Okay, so how does that play into the paranormal? Does Nana come back and say, okay, Richard, you need to scoot back over? Or is there a, a spirit hanging out in the hospital going, okay, this, this IV needs to be fixed um, I don't know anything about IVs. <laughs> yeah, your saline drip is not working right. Uh, are they there? Are they there as guides and helpers, or you know, are they just hanging around? That's that's such a fascinating question, and I'm always very hesitant to talk uh, too much about that kind of thing at the risk of offending somebody. You know, um, for example, one fairly contentious subject is that when somebody is hurt or is unwell or, or suffering misfortune. Um, people like to pray for them, which I think is a wonderful thing. Um, it demonstrates love and positive intent, and I'm all for it. But if that person then dies or, or something bad continues to happen to them, um, the implication is that they weren't prayed hard enough for or that those prayers went unanswered. And I think in reality, it's more complex than that, you know? Um, so I think when it comes down to the paranormal side of things, the reason that healthcare sees so many ghost stories uh, and there are so many of these encounters with nurses, doctors, patients, paramedics, um, is that we are a little bit closer to death than most other people. And so we tend to have a few more brushes with it. But I don't know if I'm not a big believer that there is a divine or spiritual hand guiding the surgeon's hand or something of that nature. I, I think that we are doing the very best we can. And if we do have spiritual guides, which I suspect we do, I think that they are more advisors and cheerleaders uh, and sometimes commiserators um, and don't really get to intervene directly. There may be exceptions and I may be wrong, but that's that's just my perspective. Interesting. Yeah, so you mentioned the, the medical field and mm. you know, you've been an EMT for a, a long time, like you know, you, you stated earlier, mm -hmm. um, do you see that on a, you know, on a everyday basis working as, as an EMT or is it just, you know, periodically that you might see something supernatural or paranormal occur? Not once. 
for me. Um, now I, was, I, I became an EMT in 2002. I became a paramedic in 2009. Uh, and I've talked to so many people in my profession that have had paranormal experiences. I've had not one. <laughs> Which, But what, what happened was that um, I got a reputation at the various hospitals. I deliver patients where a nurse would have something strange happen and somebody would say, hey, that paramedic, the, the weirdo, you know, the one who the one who believes in ghosts, you should tell him he'll probably be by tonight, the, the funny talking guy. Uh, you should tell him your story. And I heard enough stories like that, that I ended up putting them together and writing books like Haunted Healthcare because I thought they deserved to be collected. But this has yet to happen to me um, in my own medical practice. It may well be that I'm just so focused on my patient and on my scene that a parade of headless horsemen could go by behind me and I would <laughs> I'm more worried about what's going to kill my patient next and prevent yeah. it from happening. You know, a friend of mine told me that because I had the same thing all the time. Um, when I would show up at a haunted location, the hauntings would stop. <laughs> I was like, man, do they hate me or what? And he told me, um, no, that you, and this is when I first started hearing about light workers, that when a light worker comes in, they shine so brightly, the darkness goes away because you're there, your mission, as an EMT would be there to save people or lift people up or mm -hmm. raise them up. And so maybe you're putting that vibe out there until you just don't see the paranormal. I mean, it's entirely <laughs> possible that there's always been this joke in the field, or at least when I started in the paranormal field in the mid nineties, that the paranormal investigator comes in the front door and the ghosts go out the back. Exactly. You know, <laughs> right. that's, yeah. That's a longstanding kind of truism uh, in the paranormal research field. So it's possible. I mean, the truth is I'm not entirely sure. And my, my whole philosophy, I think the single most important thing I've learned in the paranormal field is that the more certain somebody is they know the truth, the less they resonate with me. I love the people that are seekers, that are curious, that will give me their opinion, but will say, I ultimately don't know, but I'm looking for answers. And so having done the paranormal now for over a quarter century, having written 28 books, I think it is, um, I still do not have conclusive definitive answers. And that's the joy of what we all do. It's why we, you know, gather on shows like this. We go to conventions, we read books, we uh, investigate, we're all seeking answers. And I suspect that for as long as we all live, that answer will be just maddeningly one step in front of it's in the next book. We won't get to it yet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. yeah, but we're able to have interesting discussions like this, talk right. about different theories. And um, yeah, I think you're right. We're never going to get that one definitive answer. I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, where we're not supposed to know all the answers. But mm -hmm. um, it's the question that keeps driving us and, and sending us down this path. Yeah. Uh, I have a question here from Sarah Youssef, do you believe that the medical mindset is conducive of attracting paranormal activity? So kind of what we were talking a little bit about there. Hi, Sarah. No, I don't. Actually, I think that the um, the medical environment is conducive. The mindset's very interesting. The mindset between physicians and nurses fascinates me because um, nurses are kind of like the NCOs of the medical profession. They run everything. They are the sergeants and sergeants major of the medical profession. Um, doctors are a little bit more elevated, equally hardworking, don't get me wrong, with a great deal of responsibility, but doctors just think in a slightly different way. So I've had many nurses uh, over the years come up to me and tell me the most incredible stories um, of ghostly behavior or activity that they've encountered. And they're not phased at all because it takes a lot to make a, a seasoned nurse bat an eyelid. And doctors have told me things like, and I'll paraphrase, but not too much. Doctors have said, uh, oh, you're the, you're the paranormal guy, huh? Yeah, I don't believe in all that stuff. It's crap. I'm scientifically <laughs> trained. I have a degree. And then they'll go, but this one time. <laughs> right. And so they'll tell me this terrific story and I'll say, how do you explain that? And they'll just say, these people that are so driven by research, evidence-based medicine, such terrific scientific thinkers will say, oh, weird stuff, stuff happens, you know. It's, it's like an yeah, amazing no, my, blind spot I've seen. No, my, my dad is, uh, he, he's very similar like that. He's, he's a nuts and bolts guy. He's not a doctor. He's, he's a machinist, tool and die maker by trade, but he's very, you know, nuts and bolts. Um, and so he'll, 
he'll say the same thing. I don't believe in all that stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But there was this one time and he launches into a story. It's like, dad, that's a ghost story. No, 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 no. So it, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it fascinates me that um, two types of medical professional that work so closely together have such different ways of looking at the same type of event. Yeah, yeah, but when, yeah, when you're involved in the woo-woo, that's what makes life fun. You know, it's like, ooh, it happens now that I've let my guard down. And, you know, I'm not scared anymore. And things happen all the time. Yeah. Here. And especially over in front of that bookcase. I, I keep seeing this lady in a brown dress go by. And it's always when my daughter's there, too. Wait, so your bookcase, not mine, right? Yeah. Okay. Just to be clear. No, there's a skeleton it, by yours, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is <laughs> what does your ghost think of the holiday heifer back there? Oh, yeah. But you see my holiday heifer? There's a really cool. sad story to that. Oh, no, um, sure enough. Um, yeah, we were, long story short, uh, I found out I got, I had cancer. My husband divorced me, kicked us out. And all we had was money for um, a couple of Christmas presents. So we dressed up the cow. And so it became the, well, first it was the Christmas cow. And we don't celebrate Christmas anymore. So it's now the holiday heifer. So okay. uh, it's my daughter and I, that's our tradition. And we put presents around the cow. That's so sweet <laughs> and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah, well, life goes on, you know. <laughs> it does. So anyway, um, what was the question I was asking you? Oh, the woo-woo in life. Doesn't it make it fun, though? It doesn't have it to does. be all paranormal. It doesn't it, have to be life. It it's, adds flavor, it, you know? It's a blend. Yeah. It really, really does. And I love that. But I like the world being colorful. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the great things about life is there are always going to be mysteries for us to solve. And, you know, long may that be the case, right? Um, we shouldn't know everything. We should always be striving to find answers um, and striving for accuracy. And and I think that most people appreciate that. We're never satisfied when we find out an answer. Most people, we we are wired to want to know what what's beyond the next mountain, what's over the hill, what's down the road, you know. And and I think that's wonderful. It's something timeless and ageless that's part of the human condition. Yeah. Or they won't believe it if you tell them. So. <laughs> Like, yeah. You know, our mission isn't to convince people. I mean, yeah. Sarah mm -hmm. asks, do I think, or do we think that evidence-based research is the wrong direction in advancing the paranormal field? You know, evidence-based research is the way to go in medicine. Um, in terms of the paranormal field, though, not everything can be quantified. Um, not everything can be explained at our current level of understanding. The analogy I love to use would be that if I could somehow magically meet your great-great-grandfather or grandmother, and show them an x-ray of themselves or maybe we could go back four or five hundred years you know um show them an x-ray of their own chest to them the concept of an x-ray is completely alien their frame of reference cannot conceive of it so they default to it being spirits wizards magic probably black magic right probably evil probably mm -hmm. witchcraft whatever right. you want to label it when in truth this is a property of nature that they just did not understand at that time and what fascinates me the most is in 500 years from now, what is going to seem paranormal to us today that will be taught in textbooks? What will our descendants be laughing at us for having believed was paranormal when it was simply a property of nature that we have not yet adequately understood? Or we forgot. Uh, let me ask you a question real quick um, about paranormal in the hospitals. You said you've never seen a... a paranormal activity going on in a hospital what about Not while i'm working no what about oh okay what about in the stanley <laughs> hotel have you seen that the stanley hotel um i did three years there running the ghost i want to say running giving ghost tours it's not like i ran the department i was one of several tour guides <laughs> and they were all excellent um the stanley has its reputation as one of the world's most haunted hotels and in my experience this is well deserved very well deserved indeed um I was skeptical when I took the job there because I thought, you know, I hang out with a lot of detectives and they will tell you that when you're investigating anything, usually a crime for them, but whether it's the paranormal or just trying to get at the facts behind a, a case, they'll tell you who benefits when there's something to benefit, whether it's money changing hands or somebody's needs being met, there you'll usually find um, a reason for immoral behavior. So I expected to go to the Stanley, which makes a lot of money each year on its ghost tours uh, and find that there was all kinds of chicanery going on. And I determined that the minute I did, I was going to quit and I wouldn't be quiet about it. And what I found was that it was 100% legitimate, that 
nobody on the hotel staff from the owner to the clerks was playing this up. Um, strange and bizarre things were happening and do continue to happen on a very regular basis at that hotel. So you could almost quantify it. Well, I don't know that you can quantify it because many of the experiences are so subjective. Okay. And that's the thing with the paranormal, you know, you, you can't really put data points on subjective experiences. That's the big problem, isn't it? So you couldn't say like a piano played in the lobby every Thursday night when there was sure a Sure you could. But what you can't say is that uh, I was standing in Mrs. Stanley's music room at the piano and I had this incredible sensation of being watched. I was convinced somebody was in the room with me. And of course, when I turned around, there was nobody there. So yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. When it's a measurable objective phenomena, you can quantify that. But so okay. many experiences were personal. I mean, one that I've heard many times, and not just at this location, is people being unaccountably overwhelmed with either happiness or sadness and bursting into tears of joy and sorrow or sorrow for no reason. You know, mm -hmm. people that just are overcome with emotion. There's something about the place that gets into them. And I don't know how you would you would objectively um, document that it's a completely subjective thing and yet it happens frequently do you hmm. find as a paranormal investigator that you have far more personal experiences than say you know data collection with like meter activations evps that sort of things is it more personal experiences for you I think that I, I try to be as objective as I can, especially being a writer and a storyteller. Um, you'll often find me working with my team and I will be huddled in the corner of the room, frantically taking notes while my colleagues are performing actual experiments. But I will say that um, they, they say that people in medicine are the worst patients. And it's true. And, and what it is, is I think, especially in paramedicine, um, we see so many terrible things. And there is a, a callus that we build, a protective mechanism that says, well, this is really terrible. Thank goodness it will never happen to me. Because I'm the helper, because I do this and see this, I could never be this unfortunate. And of course, when it does happen to you, it changes your whole worldview. You know, it, it knocks you for six. And in the paranormal field, when you are so used to documenting these kinds of uh, activities and one happens to you, it really, really can challenge the way you look at everything um, because we have this, this bias that says, this is something that happens to other people and I'm here to investigate uh, and suddenly I'm experiencing. Hmm. Gotcha. So you highly recommend going to the Stanley then? I do. <laughs> and, and you, I, I no longer work at the Stanley. I have no um, financial benefit or gain from saying this. But uh, yeah, if you're into the paranormal or just a beautiful historical hotel, the Stanley is a wonderful place to visit. Yeah, it's, it's always been a bucket list item of mine. It's a little bit of a distance from me, but um, it, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad to get yeah. your, your insight on that. It's a shining example of a haunted location. But I'm bum. <laughs> I'm Have getting, you... yeah. <laughs> When's a good time to go? It's not really crowded. Uh, I would definitely say um, after Thanksgiving and before Christmas, January, February is superb because it's off season uh, and mm -hmm. the, the hotel is still lit up. So it looks oh. like a Christmas card, not just the hotel grounds, but all of Estes Park, the village, um, the town rather that the hotel is, is nestled in. So I love nice. that time of year in the Rockies, assuming, of course, mm -hmm. you're not snowed in trying to write a novel if your wife and kid would just leave you alone. <laughs> It happens. <laughs> that happens. Shining so, reference for nobody for somebody that didn't get it. Johnny <laughs> doesn't live here anymore. Right. This is Giants. <laughs> yeah, right. a little shining reference. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that was true. That there is a reason that hotel inspired Stephen King um, to write his novel. Yeah. Right. What about four hundred two or whatever that room is? Is that so? The that, the, room, that real? the room in question is two seventeen actually. Um, <laughs> that was the room Stephen King stayed in. In fact, two seventeen. Um, there, there were no dead ladies okay. in bathtubs or anything of that nature. That's a wonderful work of fiction. What's cool is that Stephen King was living in Boulder at the time. He was writing uh, a novel called Dark Shine, and it was essentially The Shining, but it was set in a uh, carnival. And the problem he had was 
stru uh, structurally, plot-wise, his problem was that if you are parents, you take your kid to a carnival that turns out to be evil and wants to feast on his soul, why don't you just run for the car and leave? And there's the end of your novel. Right. <laughs> and it was only when he went to the Stanley on the last day of the season with his wife and son, and they were the only guests, the hotel was actually closing down for the winter the next day. It was only then, and he realized people got snowed in up there. Here's my location. Here's a place you could get stuck. And as he wandered the hallways of the Stanley Hotel, everything's covered in um, white tablecloths to keep the dust off until the next year. You know, uh, he's heard a few ghost stories from the barman whose name really was Lloyd Grady, just as it is in the Stanley. Mm -hmm. And he thought, imagine being stuck up here when the ghosts come out to play and you can't get out. Oh, wow. So The Shining was really born from a nightmare Stephen King had in room 217. And I think that's phenomenal. You know, the North Rim of the Grand Canyon's like that too. There's a magnificent hotel and they close from like October to May. And there are these huge two, almost three-story doors uh, or windows um, with these huge metal things that roll down. And I was talking to a lady, I'm like, why do the, the metal shutters roll down? She goes, mm -hmm. you don't understand the snow gets that high. You well, know, you have to put it up there. <laughs> and it just made me think of The Shining and Stephen King. I was like, oh my gosh, it's... Ah. So let me ask you this, because uh, Stanley Kubrick's interpretation of The Shining, of course, you know, angered Stephen King because mm -hmm. <laughs> Kubrick had his own uh, little messages uh, integrated within that. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm assuming you've read The Shining. So which yeah. which do you prefer, the movie or the book? Well, I mean, hands down the book. Um, mm -hmm. Firstly, Many tourists are disappointed. They visit the Stanley expecting it to be the place where Kubrick shot The Shining, and it wasn't. And it's not, yeah. No, that was it, shot. It was set. actually in Oregon, right? No. Um, I should say the exteriors of the Overlook were shot in Oregon, um, but um, I believe it was Oregon anyway. But yeah. Kubrick was terrified of flying. He never left the UK after Spartacus, as it goes. So he shot Clockwork Orange. Um, he shot 2001. Even his Vietnam War epic, he decided to recreate Vietnam outside London. And of course, he was famously a control freak. So Kubrick um, did not come to shoot The Shining in the US at all. He built the Overlook on sound stages. So Kubrick's version was not shot there. Stephen King's miniseries was. I much prefer Stephen King's version because Kubrick's version, if you look at the end, uh, spoilers for anybody, if there is anybody out there that doesn't live in the Amazon that hasn't seen The Shining. <laughs> Um, it's 40 years old if you yeah. haven't seen it by now. Wait, no spoilers. No. Spoilers just in case. Yeah. So Kubrick's version ends with Jack Torrance, Jack Nicholson, of course, who starts the movie as Jack Nicholson and continues through it getting more and more Jack Nicholson until he is caps Jack Nicholson at the end. Just gets kind of more and more himself. Mm -hmm. It ends with him joining the spirits of the Overlook Hotel. And of course, the evil wins. Now, Stephen King famously had a a history of alcoholism was troubled with alcoholism and that's what the novel really is is largely thematically about and if you think about it until the scene where jack torrance is locked in the freezer by his wife and the ghost let him out everything that is supposedly ghostly in the shining can be explained away by jack being drunk it's only when we have that objective moment where someone lets him out of a locked freezer that you realize, okay, this hotel really, truly is haunted. There's no delusion here. This is real. And then the, the the crux of the novel's climax becomes how can Jack Torrance resist the lure of the ghosts? And the ghosts are, of course, a metaphor for alcoholism. He redeems himself. He gives his life to save his son and his wife. He blows up the Overlook Hotel, and a good man is redeemed at the cost of his life. That's a, that's a beautiful ending to a tale. Whereas Kubrick's version, you know, the, the the evil and the negativity wins out at the end and it ends on kind of a sucker punch. So I think Kubrick got the ending wrong and I'm 100% with Stephen King on that. So Stephen King really wrote a Christmas ghost story. Is that what you're saying? Um, certainly he's a redeemed? snowbound ghost story. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so if the twins were in the movie, and I can't remember the book because it was you know 40 years ago, mm -hmm. um, is that a legitimate haunting that's there at the Stanley or is that just although let me tell you I have seen more people walking the hallways of the Stanley dressed as the twins many of the men <laughs> many of the men you know so it's not at all unusual oh. for for you to turn a corner and see um a pair of 280 pound 
muscular twins in dresses uh, asking you to stay and play with them forever and ever and ever, which I think is a wonderful <laughs> thing. Um, but no, th there are no little girl twins associated with the hotel okay. that we're aware of. In fact, one of the strangest things about the Stanley is that the, the uppermost floor, the fourth floor is the most active. That used to be where the children would spend the summer when the Stanley was primarily a summer seasonal hotel. So it was one big dormitory for the children and the nannies and governesses that took care of them. Um, and even today, the phenomena that takes place on that floor is primarily the sound of children giggling, running, laughing, playing, opening doors, pranking people. But uh, according to the hotel's historian, we have not one instance of a child ever dying at the Stanley. Not one. So, you know, yeah. there are a number of adults because adults just die in hotels. It happens. It's natural. Yeah. But not one child, which makes the childlike nature of the phenomena all the more interesting to me. So what other type of hauntings are there? Well, the, the best explanation I've ever heard for why the Stanley is supposedly haunted by children is that the hotel opened in 1909 and it was the equivalent of Disneyland because you would go up there for the summer. So you would go up at the end of May, beginning of June. You would stay until the end of August, the beginning of um, fall. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying about Christmas, I think, because uh, children would just, we can all think back to those long, hot summers of our childhood. There was no school for weeks and your only worries, how am I gonna spend today? What mischief will I get into? I'm gonna run around with other kids. I'm gonna get muddy, you know, I'm gonna have adventures. Um, I think nobody in those that age, you're not aware of mortgages and careers and relationships. You don't have any real problems and you're as happy and free as you will ever be in your life. And so my theory, and I also would like to credit Aidan Sinclair, uh, the illusionist at the Stanley, who kind of put this theory forward. The theory I subscribe to is that so much happiness occurred at the hotel during those long, hot summer months that some of it lingers behind today. And that is what guests are picking up on as they walk the fourth floor of the hotel. So it's just yeah, the that, joy that, of life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, children revisiting or even if they grew up and, you know, became older, they would go back to a place that they um, really enjoyed as a child. That It's a very similar to theory to, um, I don't know if you've been to Mineral Springs Hotel in Alton, Illinois, but there's a little yes, girl. You have, okay. The little girl and the, um, that's supposed to be there in the abandoned pool. Um, she never died in the pool. She never died in the hotel any of that but one of the theories is that you know it was a place that she uh, sincerely enjoyed as a child and continues to frequent in her child form uh at the hotel there uh, now go ahead i, like, I love that idea and, and let me mm -hmm. say this this is something that i i kind of like to do this as a confession but if you look at the covers of any of my books or if you look at pretty much any tv show i'm on we as a field, the paranormal, we emphasize the dark because the dark is popular and it sells, you know. Um, and the truth is that the majority of hauntings that I've investigated have been pleasant ones. You know, somebody loved the place very much and either lingered or returns to visit. Um, the truth is that it's only when certain types of TV shows became popular uh, about 10 years ago that um, suddenly negative, demonic, dark entities were everywhere. And you don't hear about the good, you know, there are so many locations like that, Mike, like Mineral Springs, where, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And it, it's unfortunate that, um, it, I think the networks, you know, honestly are, are to blame a lot for that because it started with, okay, with ghosts and hauntings. And then when we need something a little darker and then we need demons and they keep upping the ante. Yeah. I mean, I long for exactly. the day when I see a network TV show you know, next week on uh, Ghost Whatever, you know, a quite nice old lady returns to look after her grandkids. Right. You just, you know, <laughs> it's hard to get excited about that, but that's a beautiful story. And that reflects the reality far more than, yeah. than I think what we're seeing. Well, if life is just a pendulum and we're swinging over to the dark demon, D-word and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. don't you think it's going to swing back to the other side? And shouldn't I'd we like the... to think so, but unfortunately, the tried and tested rule of the media is, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, oh, yeah. And I think <laughs> the, the curse of paranormal television is that if we ever made a show which accurately depicts what we do, 
people would make it 20 minutes in, we'd be sitting in the same hallway talking to nothing and they would switch off and watch the football. So unfortunately, as a product, um, the, the good side of things, the positive does not sell well. And, and we all, those of us that are in this field, we all bear a measure of responsibility for that. It's one of the few things I, I have a regret about. Yeah, well, we see that with the six o'clock news too. Very yes. rarely do you get a nice, heartwarming story. They might save it for like the very end. Most of the news is all doom and gloom and the terrible things that are happening and mm -hmm. you know across the nation or across the because world. Because by definition, yeah. it's not news otherwise. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. Well, do you know where news comes from? It's northeast, west, south. Mm -hmm. It's the information from around the globe. Yeah, and um, we were actually taught that in school. Um, if it bleeds, it leads, like you said. But then the last 30 seconds, you put a kicker in there to make everyone feel good. So, but those of us who are in the paranormal media field, if you want to call it that, mm -hmm. don't you think we almost, or would you think we almost have an obligation to help swing the pendulum the other way? Maybe it's not writing the books. Maybe it's doing things like this. Maybe it's taking mm -hmm. people to the happy, good feeling places and letting it, like you said, the people would either laugh or cry, um, yeah, taking them I, to the I good agree. spots. I agree. In fact, when I wrote my first haunted healthcare book, which is dedicated to my friend Kyle, Kyle was a, a young man who um, had been fighting terminal cancer for over a decade. He and I became friends because his father was a paramedic who had asked me to come sit with him because he was experiencing ghostly visitations. And I expected to spend maybe two hours, um, you know, trying to kind of sit with this young man and hear his story. I didn't expect for us to become best friends. And we remained that way until his death. And it, it is without a doubt the way in which Kyle taught me to look at life and death is the most inspirational story I've ever been exposed to. And I was able to put that in the book. And there is nothing spooky about it. He was experiencing, um, because he'd undergone chemotherapy as a boy, um, all of the other children uh, that he'd gone through chemotherapy with had died before him. And they would start showing up in his bedroom at night. And one of them actually touched his face where cancer had gotten into his face, was extremely painful for him, had touched his face and had taken the pain away permanently, which is just a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. So there are as many stories out there of hope and light and inspiration in this field as there are conjuring, not to pick on one thing, but conjuring-esque right. style stories of demons and darkness. Like anything else in life, it depends on where we choose to put our focus. Well, maybe we could just make a conjuring Christmas, you know, and tell some good stories. Well, even, <laughs> even with that particular house, I mean, Andrea yeah. will tell you that, uh, you know, there was very many good moments. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, at, at, at that house. Andrea yeah. called her book series House of Darkness, House of Light. Right. I didn't see any mm -hmm. light in the movie. Um, no. <laughs> and, and again, you know, I'm not I'm not here to beat down on anyone or anything, but I do believe that if we focus on the positive aspects of this, we'll we'll all be better off for it. We should have a foot in each world. Mm -hmm. yeah. Question here from the chat, lighting the dark remote viewing. Uh, why do we only see a few ghosts? And if everyone was visiting their happy place when they were a kid after they died, don't you think we'd see a lot more? Ooh, that's a great question. Very astute. I think the, the key thing there is I've never really liked the term seeing ghosts. Uh, I've always suspected that perceive is a better word. And I bring this up because there are many cases on record of say groups walking around a hotel like the Stanley, 20 people in the group, three people see somebody that perhaps doesn't belong there and disappears, 17 don't. Were those three people seeing with their eyes as we say see, and we mean that photons enter our eyes and we are objectively seeing something that we could photograph. It has an objective reality. Whereas I've often suspected that ghosts are perceived in a different way by some kind of different mechanism. Some people may be more attuned to it. Sometimes the circumstances have to be right. And I don't know what all of the components are, but they must align in order for this experience to happen. So I suspect that um, perception does not happen as often as we would think because the circumstances are not correct as often as we would like. Hope that so makes we sense. are that no that's a great answer that is a great answer and i have a lot of different theories on that which we don't have time for right now because we're <laughs> at the end of our show uh, we are yeah we, we've been on an hour we've got to wrap it up <laughs> so richard you have all of these uh, amazing books so how can people get a hold of your work 
Absolutely. Uh, you can buy my books at the usual outlets, of course. Uh, you can come see me online at richardestep.net. On Twitter, I am estepr. And uh, on Facebook, Richard Estep Author. So uh, I love to hear from people and uh, love to chat with people about this kind of stuff. All right. Fantastic. And you have any events or uh, places where people can see you on the road coming up here? Uh, supposed to be in Vegas at Vegas Para Unity this coming weekend. Oh, you can be there. Being well. Okay. Um, beyond that, that's the end of my uh, paranormal year. And I'm looking forward to putting my feet up before I investigate some new locations next year. I think the one I'm, I'm very excited about in March is I'm going to visit the infamous Hinsdale house a resident for 72 hours and uh, see what I make of that place. Yeah. You will enjoy it there. Absolutely. Excellent. And could I just thank uh, not only yourselves for being such gracious mm -hmm. hosts, but everybody that came along and listened and interacted in the chat, wonderful questions. So insightful, very respectful. Oh, they're wonderful. They're nice. <laughs> yep. Yeah, the Mad Hatters, they are a great group of people. So, we, yes, we definitely appreciate all the questions this evening. Richard, thank you so much for joining us this evening. I hope you have a very uh, happy and safe holiday season with your family. And I wish you both the same and everyone listening. Thank, thank you. you. All right. We'll see you on the road somewhere, my friend. Cheerio.